Kathy wanted me to remind you or inform you, if you were not aware of it, that uh, Sherry Skogerbo went to be with the Lord, I think, yesterday, yesterday afternoon. So, good for Sherry. She's home. She doesn't have to put up with all of this. I want to uh, thank uh, people in the sound system. Been working very diligently for quite a while trying to get some things so we're not hearing all that popping to wake us up uh, suddenly. Uh, I trust you have some other method to, to stay awake. Somebody confessed in the first service. I think they missed that popping. They were counting on that. But uh, at any event, thank you, Brian and Mike and, and Lee and Kim and everyone else who's been working on trying to get that uh, taken care of for us. That song we just sang uh, talked about the firm foundation, the foundation that we're building our lives on, that, of course, being Jesus Christ. As we prepare to break ground, we have looked at uh, several foundations that we may be building. If you build a pole barn or pole building, which uh, the architects had originally kind of suggested, you use a different kind of a foundation. You set the pole actually deep in the ground and set a, a big foundation under that. Or there was talk at one time using a steel building. In a steel building, you, you, big, you pour big, big foundation blocks of concrete and then anchor the the support on top of that to anchor it down. They say that those uh, steel buildings in the wind can move as much as, as four inches. And so it's very important that you have that anchored properly. I think we'll go with probably a standard footing, a concrete footing with a foundation wall. But nonetheless, whatever building you use, you need to decide what is appropriate for a foundation. Today, we're looking at what I've entitled the two, the twin pillars of the Christian life. This would be the foundation that probably that we need to build our life on. Of course, that foundation is Jesus Christ, but then beyond that, that foundation for service. Paul has been telling us in chapter 7, 8, and 9 of 1 Corinthians that if we're going to experience the abundant life, we're going to experience all that Christ has for us in this world, if we are going to have a rich life of serving others, that fullness, that rich fullness, there's a couple of things we're going to have to do. First of all, it includes denying ourselves certain pleasures or certain freedoms. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. We don't like anybody taking away our freedoms or our liberty. But Paul is certainly talking about limiting ourselves, how we limit ourselves. And although we're free to engage as Christians, we have a tremendous amount of freedom. But there are some things, and sometimes we need to choose not to do certain things at the risk of causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble or to sin. For Paul, it was not eating meat offered to idols. For us, it might include avoiding going into a bar, avoiding the appearance of going into, even going into a bar. It might include limiting our social drinking, 
Maybe avoiding certain political discussions and topics altogether. It may, it may be the kind of language we use, what kind of example we set for others. Paul said, if there's something I'm going to do that's going to hurt my fellow brother or sister, I will limit myself. I will not do it. And this is what we call the pillar of discipline. Number one, that would be discipline. Discipline. What I do or what I don't do in order to win the prize that God has set before me. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. In fact, there's going to be some overlap here. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, which says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I just run all over the track, run back and forth, zigzagging. He runs with a purpose. He says, I do not fight like a man beating the air. He's not throwing punches like this, but he's directing his punches. He says, no, I beat my body and I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul said, I beat my body. New American Standard Version says, I buffet my body. Unfortunately, that's the same spelling as buffet. Sadly, too many of us Christians today buffet our bodies. We get up to the buffet and we take everything, a little bit of everything that life has to offer. No, we're to buffet our bodies. Another translation, New, New International Version, strike, it says strike a blow. Or to discipline like an athlete. Other translation, I batter my body. I bring my body into subjection. I strictly discipline my body. Now, this is very foreign to our thinking and our way of life. I was sharing with somebody the other day, one of my big problems is, is my wife is such a good cook. And I'll eat the first helping because I was hungry. And the second because the first one was so good. Yet, one of the two foundational pillars that our faith rests on is discipline, and even harsh discipline. What would you deny yourself? What would you give up in order to better serve Christ and please Him, not counting a teenager? What might you incorporate, not counting a teenager, as in you wouldn't give them, a, we'd all be willing to give up a teenager. That You missed that point there. But what would you give up in order to better serve Christ and please Him? What would you incorporate? Additional Bible study, Bible college, Bible training, more prayer time, more devotion time? Paul is looking forward to a day, a time, when all of mankind is going to stand before God and our thoughts and our motives are going to be laid bare for everyone to see. 
I hope that's not the case. I hope all of you do not see all of the thoughts and motives and intentions that, that I try to suppress or try to keep hidden. But we are, God is going to see him, and he sees him even now. And Paul is planning to receive a prize at that time, a crown, if you will, an eternal reward. And he knows if he does not run this race, live this life in a certain way, if he doesn't live in such a way, he can be disqualified from the prize on that day. And furthermore, he may be disqualified from serving even now. When he talks about being disqualified, he's not talking about losing your salvation. You ever see someone disqualified in a track meet? They don't shoot them. Those guns shoot blanks. But if you've ever seen a soccer match where they'll give somebody a yellow card if they've been inappropriate, and maybe if they go so far as to give them a red card, it means they're disqualified. Not only can you not play any more this game, but the next one either. You're out. Paul says, if I do not compete according to God's rules, I run the risk of being disqualified. Being disqualified from service and from the fullness and the richness of God in this life. I run the risk of my ministry being taken away. My right to serve being eliminated. And if I persist, I could be removed from ever competing or serving again. Discipline, self-discipline. Discipline is twin tower number one. Twin tower number two is dependence. Number two is dependence. A trusting God to do the work in me. A dependence where it's all God and none me. Too much discipline and no dependence results in a serious imbalance. Ray Stedman writes, some people are so concerned about discipline, they regulate everything in their lives. They go overboard in this whole matter Paul is talking about. They set themselves rigid schedules, a time to get up, early in the morning, so many hours spent in prayer, so many verses memorized every week. And there's nothing wrong with that. But all discipline with the hope that they will be useful and effective as Christians. Those people usually end up disillusioned discouraged, and often defeated in their lives because it takes more than discipline. It takes more than discipline. We can't just organize it. It takes dependence as well. The fact that when you do something, you're counting on God to do it with you. Other people say that dependence is a great objective. They go into a kind of automatic pilot. And this is kind of what was going on in Corinth. I've received Christ. He's taking care of the rest. I can eat anything I want. I can do anything I want. They go into automatic pilot where God is going to do everything. And they float along expecting him to do just that. I was visiting with someone yesterday. Received Christ a number of years ago. Were baptized a number of years ago. Prayed the prayer of a, a sinner's prayer. And then have kind of sat back and waited for God to just kind of do his thing. And they wound up disillusioned and fruitless and ineffective. Nothing ever happens, Ray Stedman says, in their life because it takes both. That is what Paul is saying. Here at Corinth, they were going in for the dependence, the indulgence angle of things, letting God do it all. But Paul says you'll never win that way. If you're not willing to give up some things and to press towards the mark, 
To focus your life on a single objective, you will never win. You'll find yourself ultimately disqualified. There's that word that Paul says, it can happen to me, he said. I preach all this to others. If I just preach it, it shows I understand it. But if I do not do it, I too can wind up disqualified. So disqualified as a Christian, what does that look like? It looks like a ministry without power, going through the motions but not realizing any fruit. You may be busy, but nothing is happening in the kingdom. God has pulled the plug on your effectiveness. Or I quit disciplining my body, or I quit leaning on the Lord. For others, we know of many who have been disqualified because of sexual immorality. Some may be reinstated if they're lucky. Others may be out of ministry or relegated to a much different ministry. And still some are figuring God will do it all and nothing is required from me. Paul is saying it is dangerous out there. But as Christians, there are at least three advantages that we have been given. So this doesn't happen to us. Paul is talking about not wanting to be disqualified. And then he says in chapter 10, verse 1, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. So the first advantage, the first Christian advantage is, number one, we are all under the cloud. We are all under the cloud. Not a cloud of gloom or a cloud of depression, but a cloud of protection a cloud of the glory of the presence of God. And we see this especially over in Exodus chapter 14. Now what had happened is that the nation of Israel had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And they had been escorted out of Egypt, but they were not gone too long before Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he realized, hey, we've lost all, of our, all the service those guys were giving us. So they get his 600 top chariots plus a whole bunch of more chariots, and they go chasing after them. Down in verse 10 and 12, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're frightened. They forget what it was like to be slaves. And now they're saying, I wish, I wish you would have left us there. We did not want to come out here to die. And then in verse 19, then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, never forget that the angel of the Lord is traveling with you. Never forget that the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself is traveling with you. Then the angel of the Lord who was traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. In other words, the nation of Israel is up against the Red Sea. Egypt with the Pharaoh with his chariots is bearing down upon them, about to destroy them, push them into the sea, kill them. And the angel goes to the other side. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front. The pillar of cloud that was leading them, that was guiding them, that was right over the Red Sea, lifts up and goes over and is between them and the Egyptians, coming in between the armies of Egypt and Israel. 
Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. God has your back. If you are a child of his, you are under the cloud. A cloud of protection, just like Israel that day. Number two, we are baptized into Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians 10.2. We are baptized into Christ. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They were baptized into Moses as they went through the sea on dry ground. And then once the cloud lifted, the chariots came after them. And once the Israel nation of Israel was safe, the waters came crashing down. They were baptized into Moses going through the sea that day. Means they shared in the blessings, means we share in the blessings and the glory that Moses experienced as a result of going through the Red Sea on dry ground. Their enemy was buried in the sea. At the right time, God will bury your enemy in the sea as well. The Israelites passed through on dry ground. We're identified in baptism, not necessarily water baptism, But in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we receive Christ and as Christ comes into us, we are baptized into him. And number three, number three, we are strengthened and refreshed in Christ. Once again, verses three and four, they all ate the same spiritual food. As they're wandering in the wilderness, God provided them. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. They ate manna. They drank from the same rock. That rock, of course, is a type of Jesus Christ. We are not in this alone. This is the side of relying on Jesus, of dependence. We tend to be so independent and so proud. I can do this myself. I can handle it. I don't want to bother God with my little problem, thinking we have to do it on our own. We are strengthened and refreshed in Christ. He is our rock. Do you know that today? Are you relying on him today? Are you drinking from his living water? Are you pursuing him, seeking him, knocking There were 600,000 men, plus women and children, that God delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Of those 600,000 men, when they got to the promised land, and it was time to go in, all but two of them said, we can't do it. And they turned away. And out of those 600,000 men, only Joshua and Caleb eventually entered the promised land. Are we even aware of the danger inherent in setting our heart on evil things? And they are all around us today. And I'm not talking about evil things like the murder that we're reading about, those terrible murders that took place in Moscow. 
We're not talking about doing things that will get you arrested. What we're talking about are the things that subtly draw us away from God and our calling and to interfere with these advantages we just spoke about and interfere with our destiny and our service without even thinking about it, without even noticing. So quickly, four danger areas. Number one, idolatry. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and get up to indulge in pagan revelry. Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. While they're in the desert there, went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments. While he was there and he was gone for quite a while, 40 days and 40 nights, it was a long time, people got anxious. They were worried. So they had a party. It's good to get together, good to celebrate, good to, to think of the positive things and the things God has done for us. So they had, a, they had a party. And then one thing led to another. They got up to eat. Nothing was wrong with that. They started drinking. Nothing wrong with that. Then they didn't stop drinking. Big problem with that. Then they started in on pagan revelry. And somehow, they took up a collection of gold. Now, when they left Egypt, Egypt was so glad to get rid of them, so glad to get the plague stopped, that they gave them loaded them down with gifts, including gold and jewels. And so, during the pagan revelry, they, they got up and they, and they took a, an offering and they, uh, they brought it to Aaron and they said, we want you to make us a golden calf. And according to Aaron's side of the story, he just threw the gold in the fire and out popped a golden calf. One just like they used to see in Egypt. And they worshipped it. And God was not pleased. And it did not work out well for them. What are you tempted to worship? What's more important to you than God? What or who is more important to you than God? That's your idol. If God were to ask you to give up someone or something, would you obey him? Or would he have to pry it out of your clenched fists? God does not want to deprive any of us of pleasure. But nothing and no one can come before God. If it does, that is idolatry. Number two, immorality, especially sexual immorality. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. As in one day, 23,000 of them died. This day, the Israelite men committed adultery with foreign women. Foreign women led them into adultery, and they had to be put to death. And 23,000, or however many it said, were killed. And that seems quite barbaric, doesn't it? Seems very unfair, very unreasonable. But it was so critical to the point that one individual, Phineas, saw a man and a woman going into a tent to commit adultery followed them in there with a spear and speared both of them through. And that turned God's anger away so more were not killed that day. Now, I'm in no way suggesting that we treat anyone 
that way or do anything remotely like that. If we're going to kill somebody, we need to kill them with love. But each of us individually needs to check ourselves in this area because this is a huge area in which so many are disqualified. Number three, the third danger area is that of testing God. Testing God. Sometimes he invites us to test him. He says, test me in the area of tithes and offerings. You bring your tithe in, test me, and see if I won't cause the floodgates of heaven to open up. He invites a test that day. But generally, testing is frowned upon. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 10. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. This is found in Numbers 21. They were growing impatient with God. They were growing impatient against God. They started speaking against God. God, why did you bring us out of Egypt? You ever say anything like that? It's your fault, God. You made me this way. You put me here. Why did you put me here? Why are you treating me this way? As a result, God sent a plague of snakes to bite the people. and They died. They cried out again, we're sorry, God, we're sorry we, we did that. And so God told Moses to make a, a brazen snake and put it on a pole and hold it up. And if you're bit by the snake, if you look to the, if you're bit by a snake and you look to the pole, you look to the, the bronze snake, you'll be healed. This snake that was lifted up, of course, represents Christ being lifted up. And if we look to him and confess our sins and ask, he will forgive us and he will heal us. We get so hung up in our lives, and I deal with many people this way, think God is not fair. Life isn't fair. Why me? Why me? Why now? The truth of the matter is, it's just your turn. That's just what life is about. The problem with it is, it disqualifies us. How can we help others when we're so focused on ourselves and when we do not trust the Lord in our lives and in our circumstances? And finally, the national pastime. Number four, murmuring and grumbling. Verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Some young men led in a rebellion against the authority of Moses and Aaron. They said, hasn't God spoken to all of us? Why are we even listening to Moses and Aaron anymore? They're not even legitimate leaders. So God says, okay, I'll tell you what. Aaron and Moses, you stand over here. You other guys stand over here. Choose which side you're going to be on. They made their choice. The earth opened up over here, and they were swallowed up, and they fell in. The murmurs and the grumblers, and that put an end to the murmuring and the grumbling. This is serious business. These are an example for us, something that happened 3,400 years ago, but they're just as relevant today, 2023, here in New Plymouth. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples. 
These things are an example. We need to learn from them. We don't have to go through this. We don't have to get swallowed up by the ground, bit by a snake, have a spear run through us. We can learn from their experience. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Ray Stedman says, we are under attack. We are not living in a beautiful, pleasant world designed for our enjoyment. And the quicker we get rid of that idea, the better. We are in a battlefield under attack. We're running a race that must be won. We're fighting a battle with a clever and a ruthless enemy, and we must never forget it. Because his devices are clever and his strategies are very subtle and we can easily fall. I don't know how carefully you've been watching what's taking place and unfolding up in Moscow with the murder of the, the four college students. I've been following his as carefully as I can, or as closely as I can. I've been very, very interested in it, hopefully not in an unhealthy way. Roy and I were talking about that. We don't want to be too uh, uh, gruesome or too interested in this, but it is just, it is evil incarnate. We're just seeing it displayed there. It's different from the gun shootings. You obviously cannot outlaw knives. And the mental illness angle is not going to work here. And the idea that was even shared by the police right after it, that Moscow was safe, when in fact, it was anything but that. What's going on in Moscow, and I appreciate what Roy shared this morning, the only way to combat this is on our knees. The only way, because gun legislation is not going to fix that. And mental illness, how would you identify this was going to happen before it happened? There's no way. It is a sign of our time. We're in a spiritual battle, and we better wake up. There was a roommate that saw the killer. She went back and locked her door, crawled under the covers, covered up her head, and went back to sleep. And that is exactly a commentary on where we are in this country and in this world right now. We've seen the evil out there. We've shut our hollow core interior door. We twist the little lock and we've gone back to bed and pretended that there's nothing, that what I saw wasn't real. What I saw is not real. That is who we are as a culture. And, unfortunately, that's who we are sometimes as a church. 
as Jesus warned one of the churches in Revelation, wake up. Strengthen what remains. Be sure your pillars are on a secure foundation, a foundation of dependence and a foundation of discipline because evil is right on the other side of that holocore door. Let's pray. Father, if we stop and, stop and think about it, some of these examples that we read today, are, they're horrific. Thousands of people, even hundreds of thousands of people dying because of sin and immorality and, and testing you. And yet, Father, your word tells us very clearly that these are an example for us to wake up, to, to see what happened to them, to see how they lived, and make a change. Make a change. Because that door, that hollow court door, that little $15 lock is really no protection against what Satan would like to do to us any day. Thank you, Father, for your protection. Thank you, Father, that we can be assured that, that we are under the cloud. We're baptized into Christ. We don't have to be afraid of these things. We can learn from them. They're an example, not a, not a warning of what's going to happen to us unless we refuse to listen, but rather an example so we might not make the same mistakes. Thank you, Father, that we live in an age of grace. But, Lord, we even see that grace all around us that, that is being taken away. We see people being, things happening that, that didn't used to happen with near the frequency that they do now. Father, help each one of us to take stock, take inventory. Am I, am I so disciplined, I'm so rigid that, that I really can't trust the Lord? Am I so undisciplined that I just let everything go on? Father, help us to strike the appropriate balance. Thank you for the ministry you have given us. We ask that you would increase that. You would give us more opportunities. Father, help us to be faithful to you. Thank you for your love and your protection. Thank you for keeping your hand of safety over us. Help us to stay in your sphere of blessing. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't want you to go away afraid. afraid. I don't want you to be nervous. I don't want you to be anxious. I just want you to be aware. Be aware of what the world is really like out there. Don't play games. The world's playing for keep. God bless you and have a wonderful afternoon.